Morning. Well, I hope you're wide awake. We're going to work hard this morning. Um, we're going to look at a topic a day over, over the uh, January period, uh, tough questions that are facing Christians today. And this morning's one is, can we trust the Bible? It's a very, very important question. Uh, we come to today's topic knowing that, um, if I can put it this way, uh, there's lots of sceptics who would say, look, this document that we have called the Bible is a manipulated one. Um, it's one that's not a true record of uh, God dealing with humanity. Uh, it's been spruced up to be looking more impressive. Um, Jesus' status, some say, was elevated by the church uh, as a way to kind of control, etc., etc., when in fact he was really just a great man. And so would it make a difference to us if that's true? Well, I guess the reality is yes. Um, I want to say if the book you've got in front of you uh, is a book that's been manipulated, it is not accurate, uh, it isn't God's word, then I'm going fishing. And uh, when the fish aren't biting, I'll go surfing. Uh, but you won't see me here because I don't think there's any point if this book that we call the Bible is not reliable. And so we've got to answer the critics and the sceptics and if I can say the genuine inquirers uh, and there are people who want to know genuinely can we trust this book, um, is it a trustworthy book or is it one that's been changed and chopped and all those sorts of things that you'll hear people say. And so I want to go through and just ask a couple of simple questions. Um, now it's worth saying I could talk for at least an hour uh, without drawing breath before I got going. And I'm going to try and do it in the next 27 minutes because I've already sucked up about three. So let's get going. Uh, and if I've turned my clicker on, that would probably help. Here we go. Um, is the Bible a manipulated document? Now, I'll come closer here. First question I want to ask is how is the Bible written? Now, I want to ask that in the context of the great theologian Dan Brown. Now, you've probably heard of the great theologian Dan Brown. Uh, he wrote the Da Vinci Code. And this is what Dan Brown says about the Bible. Uh, I'm reading from his book on page 312. The Bible is a product of man, my dear, not of God. The Bible did not fall magically from the clouds. Now he's right at that point. It didn't fall magically from the clouds. Man has created it as a historical record of tumultuous times and it's evolved through countless translations, additions and revisions. I wouldn't say it's evolved, but there's no doubt there are numbers of translations uh, we have discovered more manuscripts as time has gone on that have helped us uh, have a more accurate version. And so, yes, there has been revisions. He says, history's never had a definitive version of the book. Well, he misunderstands the nature of what the Bible is at that level. But here's where he gets interesting. More than 80 Gospels were considered for the New Testament and yet only a relative few were chosen for inclusion, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John among them. Well, who chose which Gospels to include, Sophie asked. Sophie's one of the characters in the book. Aha, teething burst in with enthusiasm. The fundamental irony of Christianity, the Bible as we know it today, was collated by the pagan Roman Emperor Constantine the Great. Now, it's worth saying that statement is just completely wrong. But you read the book and you kind of think, it's wrong, isn't it? But you're not quite sure. How do you respond to comments like that? Well, that's what we're going to look at because what Dan Brown's saying is the Bible is a human book, not a divine book. Now, no doubt it is a human book, absolutely, but we want to say it's also a divine book. Uh, it's not the only writings about Jesus. He's saying he's absolutely right. There are more writings about Jesus 
it was very common knowledge and we'll see that as we go through today and I'll read you one of the books that he's talking about and I'll ask the question actually do you think this book is scripture? Uh, it's a good question to ask. Look at actually what they're saying. It's a book that's evolved over time to suit the needs of the church. I think that's completely wrong and the final version was put together by the Roman Emperor. Well, I think that's completely wrong but why do I say that? Well, let's start. Um, how did we get the New Testament? And I want to narrow the question to that because the Old Testament would take another uh, good deal to deal with and the New Testament, no doubt, is the key document for us. Not that the Old Testament is not key, it's very key. But so we're going to look at the question, the New Testament. How did we get that? Very important. Well, I want to say to you in very simple terms, the reason we have the New Testament is because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And I want you to see that this is the primary reason we have the New Testament. It's because Jesus was bodily, physically raised from death. He really died. He was buried. We've talked about that in the Creed today. And he really rose bodily, physically from the grave. And that's why we have the New Testament today. You see, the New Testament, in one way, you could say, is actually the book that records and explains the meaning of Jesus' life, death and resurrection. And if there was no resurrection, there would be no New Testament. There is no doubt in my mind this is the case. Because, you see, these documents that we call the New Testament really are the written documents to explain and proclaim and encourage people about that reality. It's that and nothing more, you might say. It is a document, the 27 of them, about the life, death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's have a look at what that means. Um, The Christian church has always proclaimed, since Jesus rose from the dead, that this is the reality of history. Now, I've got up on the screen there a quote from 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1 to 2. I've got a lot of quotes today. If you want to follow them along in your Bibles, please do. I've got most of them on the screen. And it's worth saying this chapter records one of the earliest oral statements of the Christian church. And it's a creed that's contained in there. I'm going to read you the introduction. Have a look on the screen. You can read it there. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. In other words, the message. I proclaimed it. You received it. You heard it. You believed it. On which you've taken your stand. By this gospel, you're saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. Now, what is this message? Now, the verses I'm going to read now date back orally to around the 30s in the first century. That's historically where they began. Just a few years after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, this tradition, this creed, was understood and known. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. And here's the creed. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve, and it goes on. Now, when you read it in the original language there, there's what's called, uh, I won't give you the technical, there's some language used there, which is in the form of a creedal statement, and you can see it in the English with the word that. And there's four things that are picked up here. That Christ died. That he was buried. That he was raised. That he appeared to people. Uh, And this is the heart 
of the message that was proclaimed. Christ came, according to the Scriptures, he died, he was buried, in other words, he was really dead, he rose again bodily, and he appeared. And when you hear the apostles proclaiming the gospel, you continue to hear all of these things being mentioned. And this particular construction of the way they memorised it, as I said, dates back to a few years after Jesus rose from the dead. It was then, if I can say, passed on uh, from the apostles to Paul, who then passed it on to the churches. It's a tradition. It's the gospel tradition. And you see, the tradition is a message about the resurrection. Uh, Let me read to you from Acts chapter 2. Sorry, I've jumped ahead. Um, And Acts chapter 2 records the first message after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And you see, when Jesus rose from the dead, he had this intensive school of theology for 40 days with the disciples. He then said, wait. He went back to heaven. Wait. The Holy Spirit will come. The Holy Spirit came. And they stood up and then preached to explain what had taken place. The message ends this way. Verse 32 of Acts chapter 2. God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses to the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he's received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out on you what you now see and hear. Peter then went on to say, with many words he warned and pleaded them. Save yourself from this corrupt generation and those who accepted his message were baptised, about 3,000 were added to their number that day. The resurrection was the event that produced a life-changing message. That's the connection you need to see and that is the birth of the New Testament. It is a preaching movement. It is based on a message. The only reason the church exists is because Jesus has risen from the dead. The disciples, after the death of Christ, were ready to pack it in and go back to the country to Galilee until Jesus came back and he literally surprised them, shocked them. They thought it was all over. He came back and he commissioned them to go out and announce the victory of God, the coming of the kingdom of God in his death and resurrection. No resurrection, no church. No resurrection, no Christians. No resurrection, no hope. No resurrection, no message. No resurrection, no New Testament. So who wrote the New Testament? Well, it's a very good question. The first thing to see is Jesus authorised official spokespeople. Jesus was not surprised by the fact that they crucified him. He predicted it. He knew it was going to happen. He also knew he would be raised from the dead. He also knew he would return to heaven. And so he took plans to gather his disciples, the twelve, and he told them, after I leave, you will go out in my name and proclaim this truth. But importantly, he said they will have a number of things. They will be given the Holy Spirit to help them. Jesus didn't write anything down about his message. And that shouldn't surprise us. He was, if I can say, a wandering preacher. He went from town to town proclaiming the kingdom of God. And yes, people remembered his message. People wrote down his words later on. But he himself did not write anything down. He left that to his disciples whom he commissioned. And so he authorised official spokespeople. They had two key qualifications. First is they were commissioned. And an apostle is what they became known after the resurrection. Before the resurrection, they were the disciples. 
Now, I'm not trying to be confusing, but they were disciples. Disciple means a learner. They were learning with Jesus in that period of three years of his ministry. He then authorised them to go out and be his spokespeople after his resurrection. And that's where we get the word apostle. And it's a very simple word that means you are sent to deliver a special message given by the sender. You've got this special authority to go in this person's name and speak something. And that's why they became known as the apostles. They were the authorised ones who went out with this incredible message. Now, I'll give you one uh, version of that. You can see it on the screen. Paul reflecting on his apostleship or his call to go as a commissioned person by the Lord Jesus. He writes in Galatians where his authority is under fire. And he starts off the letter with uh, a number of things. This is one of them. I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any person or man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. And you see, what he's saying is, uh, I've got this authority that comes not from anyone that's human. It's from God himself through the Lord Jesus Christ. He has given me the revelation of this message. And I can't change it and you can't change it, is what he says in Galatians. And if you do change it, you'll be eternally condemned. It's very strong language. Because if you read the letter to the Galatians, the whole gospel and the message of grace is under fire. So they had to be authorised. But secondly, they had to be eyewitnesses. And you can see here 1 John 1 uh, is John, the apostle, testifying to this reality. And I'll read a second verse after that. But when you read John's message, it's interesting how he starts his letter that he wrote to the churches. That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our own eyes, which we've looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. What John is saying is, I witnessed the reality of this person called Jesus. Now, there's more that you could say there. But you see, when they were looking for a replacement disciple to become one of the twelve to replace Judas, this is what they said had to be part of their CV. Acts chapter 1, verse 21. Judas has died, they need to replace him. Therefore, Luke says... It's necessary to choose one of the men who've been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us, for one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. You see, there had to be, if I can say, a commissioned person who was there from the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, which began with the baptism of John. And so they were there for that whole three-year period from his baptism, his life and ministry and miracles, his death and his resurrection and they saw all of what took place. And thirdly, um, so they had two key qualifications. Uh, They were given an indispensable gift and Jesus made this promise to them. He said the advocate, and he's talking to the twelve, the disciples, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name He will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. Um, Jesus was well aware of their frailties uh, that they had as humans and people rightly asked the question, is it possible for humans to write God's words? A very good question. They were able to because God gave them his spirit. And note what he says in chapter 16. I'll just read it to you of John's Gospel. 
The Spirit of truth, when he comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own, he will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. The disciples wrote, empowered by the gift of the Holy Spirit. So they could write down not just human words but God's word to people. So who were these spokespeople? Well, there were the 12 disciples. Uh, there was Paul the Apostle who was called later. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 talks uh, that there are some other apostles. Now, it's a very interesting phrase. Um, he says he appears to Cephas, he appeared to James. And so James, the half-brother of Jesus, was included in this apostolic band. And then uh, Paul says, then to all the apostles. And it's a very interesting phrase there because he's already mentioned the twelve. He's mentioned Paul, he's mentioned James, that we're familiar with James' letter. He says actually there were some other apostles there. And I take it that's how we have some extra people who wrote apart from the twelve that were recognised as being part of the apostolic group and having that authority. And so you can think of the book of Hebrews, which the people of the day knew who wrote it, we just don't know. Jude and Mark, uh, the three books that come to mind, um, they were written by this, if I can say, slightly broader apostolic group. But there was no doubt that in the early church, uh, there was this recognition of apostles who had special authority and they were a special group. I could say more about that. If you've got questions, please do come and see me afterwards. But the crucial need, link we need to make is, it's a preaching movement with these apostles, this apostolic band, proclaiming this message in an authorised way. Now what took place is they began preaching in Jerusalem. But the gospel was great news as we have seen this morning. People get baptised, people respond, people believe. And from the very first moment the gospel went out, people believed the message and the church grew and grew and it went beyond the walls of Jerusalem out to Samaria. It went out further to, if I can say, the Gentile currency. Uh, it went eventually to Rome, we find, in the New Testament. And the disciples or the apostles, they couldn't be in every place. They had to now go from a preaching movement to a writing movement. And so, yes, they kept preaching verbally to people, but they had to write down what they preached and the instructions for the churches. And so you can see here, from the very beginning, they are devoted to the apostles' teaching. The apostles are teaching... And people are devoted to their words. But their teaching took written form as the church expanded. Now, this mightn't be a common verse that you would um, reflect on a lot, but it's a very interesting verse in terms of uh, what was happening in terms of the practice of how churches ran in the first century. After this letter has been read to you, Paul is writing to the Colossian church, See that it's also read in the church of the later scenes and that you in turn read the letter from later scenes. Now, it's worth making this note the books that would be read with authority up until this point would have been the Old Testament scriptures. A new practice is now introduced that the reading of the apostles' writings are read alongside that. Now, what they're doing is in practice putting the same authority with the apostles' writing as the Old Testament writing, i.e. scripture. This is the word of God. And Paul's comments are interesting. When you've read it, you pass it on to the church down the road because they need to read it. And you see, what happened was the letters 
were the instructions and the explanation about what it meant that Jesus rose from the dead. And you see, the New Testament has the documents, the four Gospels, that tell the story of Jesus. The book of Acts tells the story of the early church and the progress of the message of Jesus. And the letters explain the story of Jesus and what that means for us as Christians. And so the letters began to be written, the Gospels began to be written as the church spread. Now here's the interesting thing. Uh, When they wrote these letters, they didn't write them thinking they were just writing as Paul, the man. There was this very strong self-understanding that they wrote God's words to people. Now have a look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 36, and I'm going to read one. I've left one verse out, unfortunately. Uh, Did the word of God originate with you? Very important question. Where did the word of God come from? There's a big debate about prophecy in the church at that point. Are you the only people that's reached, Paul says to the Corinthians? Well, if anyone thinks he's a prophet, i.e. that he has God's word for the people, let him acknowledge that what I'm writing to you is actually the Lord's command. I just want to read the verse I forgot to put on the screen. If he ignores this, he will himself be ignored. What's Paul saying? You think you've got the word of God? Well, actually, I'm the one who's got the word of God and I'm writing to you the Lord's command. And if you ignore me, you'll be ignored because God will ignore you. I'm writing to you the Lord's command. Now, whether you agree about whether Paul writes God's word is a different question. What can't be doubted is Paul believed that he wrote God's word. That was his self-perception. So what happened in the early church? Well, it's interesting. Um, Within the first century, not the fourth century as Dan Brown says, within the first century, when the church is just beginning, you already have the concept of a New Testament. Now, they haven't got all the books of it, but they've already elevated these writings to the status of Scripture. And I'll show you a couple of ways where you see that in the New Testament itself. Have a look on the screen. 1 Timothy chapter 5. It's a discussion about church leadership. And Paul says this, The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honour. That's not why I read it, uh, but it's just in the verse. Especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, Do not muzzle the ox, while it's treading out the grain and the worker deserves his wages. Now there's two quotes there and they are spoken of as being scripture. Now the first quote, do not muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain, if you're familiar with it, it comes from Deuteronomy. It's Old Testament scripture. The quote, the worker deserves his wages, the second quote, do you know where that comes from? It comes from Luke's Gospel, chapter 10, verse 7. And you see, it's fascinating because Paul is now saying um, Luke's Gospel is now a written document in existence, probably in the 50s or 60s. But not just that it's in existence, it's Scripture. It's an official document from the apostolic band. And Luke was a, if I can say, travelling and apostolic companion of Paul. And so it shouldn't surprise us that he refers to Luke's Gospel here. He probably helped write it along with Luke. It's scripture. 
on the same level of authority as the Old Testament. Now have a look at the second one. Uh, This was our Bible reading. It's to Peter. The Apostle Peter is writing this. And he says at the end of the letter, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand. So if you've ever struggled to understand Luke and the book of Romans, there you go, you're in good company. Apostle Peter was the same. But note what he says, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures. So the Apostle Peter is saying about Paul, Paul wrote scripture. That's the thing to note. You see, as the apostles wrote, their writings were recognised as being on the same par as the Old Testament from the very beginning. And they were recognised as being God's word in a way other writings never were. Now here's the interesting thing. These letters were kept and copied by the churches as the apostolic witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, from the very beginning their writings had authority because they were the ones who were commissioned and were the eyewitnesses. And from the very beginning of their production and reception in the churches, Christians recognised this is God's word and you hear the voice of God as you have them read. And I want to read to you a couple of quotes from church history about how churches receive them over the next period of a couple of hundred years. Now the first is from a guy called Clement of Rome. And it's interesting, he's writing only in the first century, AD 96. He was based in Rome and he writes a letter to the Corinthians. And he's not claiming his writings are scripture. He writes just to encourage them, but note what he says. Now the gospel was given to the apostles for us by the Lord Jesus Christ And Jesus Christ was sent from God. That is to say, Christ received his commission from God and the apostles theirs from Christ. The order of these two events was in accord with the will of God. In other words, uh, the church immediately recognised that the apostles are the ones who were authorised to proclaim the gospel, the resurrection event. And just as Jesus was sent from the Father, so the apostles were sent from Jesus. And this was in accord with the will of God. Now, You can debate whether you believe that, but what is not in debate is what the early church understood about the authority of the apostolic writings. From the very beginning, they had them at the level of Scripture. Now, I'll give you another quote. This one's from Justin Martyr. He was a great apologist for the Christian church. And he writes this in the mid-150s, 2nd century now. On the day called the Day of the Sun, which is how we get Sunday, uh, it's Resurrection Day. All who live in the cities or the country gather together to one place. And he's talking about Christians here. And the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read. What he's describing here is the New Testament or the Old Testament. Memoirs of the apostles, the writings of the prophets, they're read as long as time permits. Then when the reader has ceased, the president verbally instructs. In other words, if you can, I don't want to use that title, but I'm the president here in that sense. We've had the reading of God's word and then they would be instructed. The president would verbally instruct and exhort to the imitation of these good things. Then we will all rise together and pray. That's the early church. They loved to get the apostles' writings. 
And it's a fascinating description, the memoirs of the apostles. Their writings, along with the prophets, the Old Testament, they're read and they're explained and we're exhorted from them. I could go on with other quotes. So how did we get the New, uh, the New Testament? How did the church decide what books were in and what weren't? What weren't? Now, Dan Brown says this. Have I got the quote there? Yeah. Uh, Constantine commissioned and financed the New Bible, which omitted those Gospels that spoke of Christ's human traits and embellished those Gospels that made him godlike. The earlier Gospels were outlawed, gathered up and burned. As you can see, uh, it's so far from the truth, it's ridiculous. The Gospel of Luke, already in play in the mid-first century, just a couple of decades after Jesus rose from the dead. What do we say in response to that? Well, let me just give you another quote here. It's from Origen. Um, Many have taken in hand to write, but only four Gospels are recognised. Now, this is written around about the early 3rd century, 200s. I know a certain Gospel which is called the Gospel according to Thomas and a Gospel according to Matthias and many others have we read. So Origen is writing um, a reflection on Luke chapter 1 verse 1 which talks about the historical nature of the Gospels. And he's saying there's only four Gospels that have been recognised and received by the churches. Uh, We know that there's other Gospel material out there. I I know about the Gospel according to Thomas. I know about the one according to Matthias. And many others have we read. In other words, they were not ignorant about the fact that there were lots of other writings that propagated in the period after the first century. And that is the reality. There were lots of things that were written. That's why Dan Brown can say there's all these other documents. They were well known, though, in the early church. And Origen is saying, lest we should in any way be considered ignorant because of those who imagine they possess some knowledge if they were acquainted with these, nevertheless, among all these, we've approved solely what the church has recognised which is that only four Gospels should be accepted. And you see, what Origen is reflecting on in the early 200s is this is what the church has always believed and always uh, recognised and accepted. You see, what they looked for was this. Um, When the apostles started preaching, one of the first things they did was to say, is this in keeping with what the Old Testament teaches? And you think about the Berean church. Uh, Paul went and proclaimed the gospel and they said, that's interesting, we're going to go back to our Old Testament and search the scriptures and say, is this in line with the Old Testament? And all of the documents you see in the New Testament actually are fulfilment of the Old Testament. The Old speaks of Christ, the New reveals Christ. Do they fulfil the Old Testament? Secondly, did they have apostolic authority? That's the second question they're interested in. Was this from one of the apostolic band that we know about and we trust? And if it wasn't, it was discarded. Now, there was lots of good writings that were, if I can say, deemed to be helpful. The Didache is one of them, an instruction manual on the Christian faith. But it was not revered as being apostolic. Did it have apostolic authority? And lastly, the witness of the Holy Spirit. Um, The churches received it. They heard God speaking through these documents. I want to read to you the Gospel of Thomas. And I want you to ask the question, does this meet these criteria? Does this seem to fulfil what the Old Testament spoke of? 
Does this have the mark of a genuine apostle who lived with and saw and witnessed Jesus' ministry, death, resurrection? Uh, Does this sound like the word of God to you? This is what Thomas wrote, and please, if you're a woman, do not hit me after the service. Simon Peter said to them, Let Mary go away from us, for women are not worthy of life. Jesus said, Lo, I shall lead her, so that I may make her a male, that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every woman who makes herself a male will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that's a great book, isn't it? You'd want that in the Gospels. I'm getting some bad looks from some of the women around here. It's a dreadful book. Yes, it has some material that looks like some of the other Gospels, but you see, it came in late. It never was recognised as being from one of the true apostles and it was discarded. And that's what Origen said. We know about these books, but they weren't from the apostles. And so how did we get the New Testament? It began as a message about the resurrection. It was such an important message that was for so many people it was written down. But it was a written word that had authority. And from the very beginning, that authority was recognised as Christian people heard it read to them that this was not just any other book, it was the word of God. And it came from the authorised apostles of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And so from the very beginning they read it, they learned it, they copied it and they passed it on. And that's why we have over 20,000 fragments, copies and editions of the New Testament documents. And that's why we have such an accurate version of what was originally written. Can we trust the Bible? Absolutely. It's an incredible book. And you know what? The most important thing is this. It contains the words of eternal life. I'll have to stop there because we've got communion and we're going to celebrate this death and this resurrection of Jesus from the grave. Let me pray. Father, as we come to your word, we just say thank you for those who proclaimed it, those who wrote it, those who copied it and those who have enabled us to have it today. And I pray as we read it, we would hear your voice speak to us every day in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Mike.